Good morning. You know, as we're moving towards the the highest holiday of the year, really, for those that are believers, um, I've been um, giving messages in the past about peace and justice, and um, it's not the justice of God that gets us um, where we are here today, but we're going to look at an attribute today that will, um, you know... um, God God governs the throne that He governs from is is uh, foundation is justice and righteousness which we've talked about. In other words, He wants things to be right, and justice is the way that He makes things right. Um, but fortunately for us, it's loving kindness and truth that come forth from His throne. Um, truth tells us the way things really are. Nobody can really put spin on on the reality of something before God. He understands and he knows what the truth is. But his loving kindness um, is one that, that tempers that. Um, the day we're going to look at um, a parable that most everybody is too familiar with. So we're going to look at it again and hopefully glean some new things from that. Um, you know, in most cultures, it's, it's intuitive that um, there's life after life. There's life after this life. Almost every culture in some way believes that. That, you know, there's life here, but there's something on the other side. What, um, and, and most people believe that how we live in this life has a whole lot to do with what it's like in this other life that's not as well known to us. Uh, We've had people that supposedly have died and come back and tell us what it's like, but we really don't know for sure exactly what's on the other side of death um, as far as what we will experience. Um, So some people think about this question a lot. What, what about eternal life? What, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Uh, and some people don't give it a second thought until they get close to death. Um, and some people think about it a lot and they settle the answer of what it's going to be like uh, on the other side. Um, there's two or three times in the New Testament where Jesus is asked this question, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we're going to look at one of those, um, which is we're very familiar with. It's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan today. Um, but it's, it's only a launching point for us to look at this attribute of God that makes it possible for there to be a cross, a way of redeeming us. And so... Um, I want to kind of set a backdrop, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, that's going to be where the scripture is today. So, Jesus came to earth um, to redeem or, or to buy back mankind, but he also came to reveal to us a, a, a better and a more complete picture of who God is. And he says, if you have seen me, he told the disciples, if you have seen me, 
then you have seen the Father. Um, and along with his teaching, uh, Acts says that he went about doing good and healing. And so uh, in this passage before the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he sends out uh, 70, 70 of his disciples and they go out to different towns and they were to proclaim that the kingdom of God is coming near and they come back and they are excited because even the demons are subject to them na- to uh, in his name. And so they went about doing good and healing as well. Um, so Jesus said, look, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. That's what you need to rejoice about. Um, and then it says that Jesus rejoiced. He rejoiced as well that these things have been hidden from the wise and intelligent, but God reveals them to lesser ones. And so I was wondering, what are these things? What are these things that are hidden? Um, and so in verse ten twenty-two, it says, No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal, wills to reveal. So the point is that it's not just wealthy and intelligent people, and only certain classes of people um, are chosen by God, but the point is that God is free to, free to choose whomever, the le- least likely to reveal to him who this Jesus is. Uh, and then, then this then this parable is told, it says, after Jesus says that the wise and the intelligence, God has kept it from. It says, and then a lawyer stood up, and so we're going to look. We're going to look at this. Um, so we're going to read this story here, starting in verse twenty-five. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, that is to show that the way he was living was right, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite... When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, a lot of you can probably just about tell this parable word for word. We've heard it so many times. And I was thinking back, I know in the history of our church, this this particular parable, I remember on one retreat we were on, it was acted out for us. We had people that were each of the players in it, and they acted it out. And then there was another year where we broke into groups, and we each acted it out. And then we talked about how we felt as that particular part of thing, uh, of that particular person that we were. And um, so we've had, we've seen this parable so many times, you know, that it's like, okay, is that all Preston's going to talk about? It's the same thing we've heard like 27 times since we've been a believer. And yes, I am. I'm going to talk about it one more time. Um, but today, um, we're not going to act it out, but we're going to, you're going to get to be one of the people again. And I, I'm going to choose who you are. And uh, you're all going to be the lawyer. Okay? Everybody's a lawyer. That's a low blow. <laughs> Everybody's going to be the lawyer. Now, here's the challenge. You, you, can't, you can't know any more history than the lawyer did. You can't, you can't be after Jesus. Alright? You, you're this lawyer. You're an expert in the Mosaic Law and, and, and you're getting ready to go through this. Okay, can you do that? Can you, can you shove all your knowledge from Jesus on? Just forget it for a few minutes here. I know that's going to be hard, isn't it? Um, so anyway, we're going to reread this. And I'm going to stop every now and I'm going to ask you some questions. Fair enough? Greg, don't, don't go to sleep. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 25. And the lawyer stood up. And the lawyer stood up. And all the lawyers stood up. Sit down, stand up, sit down. No. Okay, I just want to make sure you were going to listen. All right? You can sit back down. You think better sitting, I know. Thank you, Greg. Just making sure you're listening. So, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, okay, who wants to, who wants to ask the question? Somebody be the lawyer that asked the question. what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You just read it. I want you to ask Jesus a testing question. Come on, somebody else. <laughs> what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's better. That's better. <laughs> Go for it, Pat. You know about that stuff. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Yeah, okay. well, there's a true lawyer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Not quite. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why'd you ask that question? Of all the questions to test him with, why that question? It's the most important question in the world. And do you think it really would be a test for Jesus? Why did he ask this question? Now, all you attorneys, let's see what happens. 
Here's what Jesus said. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Okay, some somebody answer. How do you read it? What's written in the law? How do you read it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and in your neighbor as yourself. And do you have to love something else? Your neighbor as yourself. Your na- oh yeah, and your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, as a little boy, this lawyer right here, he memorized the Shema. He, I mean, since he's six years old, he's known this answer. And in Leviticus, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. But this was a testing question for Jesus. But uh, let me see. Who was tested? Did, did you not ask Jesus the question? But who answered the question? Uh, he's a better attorney, isn't he? You answered your own question. So how could this question be such a test if you knew the answer? Now, this is where, to me, it should have just stopped. Um, have you all done those things? Love the Lord with all your heart? This, just, is, a, this is a scary question. Just a, you, We just sang, you just asked us if we made him king of our heart. Yeah. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? But this, the, the, the scripture says that but wanting to justify himself, he continued. Why does he think he needed to justify himself? Nobody had accused him of anything. Nobody had even said anything to this man that he had or hadn't done this. What happened? What happened here in, inside this guy? That he felt like he needed to justify himself. He gazed into the word and saw a reflection of of what's not right. His own heart was convicting him. His own heart was convicting him. And so he knew that nobody out there could really know if he'd love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he knew they might know that he hadn't loved his neighbor as himself. And so wanting to justify himself... He asked a question. Pat, you're doing such a good job of this. You want to ask that next question? So who is my neighbor? You are really good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to win this argument or not. You know, with Pat. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Jesus begins telling a story. Like, wait a minute. You know, if it was in a courtroom today, it's like, please give me a yes or a no. Please just answer the question. But Jesus starts telling a story now. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise a Levite, and when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the social, the social circle in, um, of that day was the center of the social elite was the priest. They were like the person. And so it goes out, I've got this diagram here, it goes out in um, this concentric circles. There's the priest, and then the next, so most important people are the Levites, and then the Joseph Jews are next. And they're called Joseph Jews because Ephraim and Manasseh were, their mom wasn't a, a, a Jew. The next, the next group is the tax collectors, the outcast, and the sinners. And then the Samaritans, and then us Gentiles. So we were a long ways from being a part of the in crowd at this point. But anyway, so interestingly, Jesus starts with the, the most coveted person to be, the priest, and then he goes to Levites, and then he skips and goes way out here to the Samaritans, which were basically like a half breed. You know, they, they were only part Jewish. But even the tax collectors uh, were ahead of them in the social strata there. Um, so, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then asked the lawyer another question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Okay, Pat. So I suppose it was the one who had compassion for him. The one who showed him mercy, yeah. The one who showed him mercy. See, now, see, Pat couldn't even say his nationality. I mean, that's how despised these guys were. Couldn't say the Samaritan. Had to say the one, you know? Now, who's answering the question again? Did you not ask me who and who is my neighbor? And then you're answering the question again. Jesus is very good at turning things around on people, isn't he? And his Holy Spirit is that way today, isn't he? Um, I, I guess I'll tell this. Sometimes I get upset with my wife and I want things to change, you know. So I'll go in there and I'm praying to God and God always turns it around on me every single time like what is it that's bothering you Preston and then I'll tell him what it is and he say well let's go over her the, the other qualities that she has and there are these massive things like loyalty and forgiving and patient all these things with me and I'm like okay I got it doesn't matter that that wasn't put up <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the difference. When I do this, the, the word I get is, I understand your pain. <laughs> wow, we have two different gods, the I guess. Yeah. 
I need to I need to meet yours, guys. <laughs> but but he you you see um, Jesus has a way of turning things around when we'll get quiet and still, and uh, th- he's done this twice already with this guy. But my question is like, why did you choose? Why did you choose the word mercy to describe what this what the Samaritan had done? Why why that word? Why that word? What does well, what does? Let's look at it this way. What does mercy mean? What does mercy mean? You don't get what you deserve. Okay, I love that because I, I was hoping somebody'd say that. So this man laying on the side of the road, half dead, he didn't deserve to get any treatment or anything, did he? That's what. That's what they were thinking. Yeah, that's what. When I, you know, as I've read this thing and I've thought about this word. Why did he use mercy? Because that's typically the definition that we have for this. And I'm like, that doesn't fit right here. You know, because the man deserved, he deserved some attention, you know. Um, and so what I did is I started looking up this word, mercy. And, and judicially, that is one aspect of what the word means. But it's got this much larger, much, much larger meaning um, biblical meaning other than just that. And what I've got written down here is it's the outward manifestation or the outward action of pity that assumes need on the part of those who are receiving it and a sufficient desire and resources to meet that need. So um, mercy has as its it's this expression of pity that that moves beyond just pity, um, and so it started to make sense of. Oh, I am, I'm beginning to see that there's there's a broader sense of this word than just being forgiven or let off the hook or whatever. Um, here, and, and this is what's interesting about this word because in every religion except Christianity. The, the, the mercy is always at the expense of justice. But in Christianity, it's ne- justice is never compromised. And um, because there had to be mercy before there could be justice, or there would be no hope for mankind. And so what we're going to look at um, is this particular word because how does this fit with God's character and how does it make um, the cross possible? I, I've got three um, kind of heavyweights here. I'm just going to read a quote about mercy. Martin Luther said this, this, speaking of mercy, this is the first work of God that he is merciful to all who are ready to to do without their own opinion, their own right, their own wisdom, and all spiritual goods and willing to be poor in spirit. Jonathan Edwards said, God is pleased to show mercy to his enemies according to his own sovereign pleasure. Though he is infinitely above all and stands in no need of creatures, yet he graciously Pleased to 
to take a merciful notice of poor worms in the dust. That's us, poor worms in the dust. Charles Hodge says, Mercy is kindness exercised towards the miserable and includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness, which the scriptures so abundantly ascribe to God. So, after answering the one who showed him mercy, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Just go and do likewise. And so, you're the expert now. And so, I want to ask you if you really get it. Do you really get it? Now that you've used the word mercy, and, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. So, think about it. You pretty much memorized the Torah, so you should know the whole book of Genesis. Okay? So mercy is used in that book. The first 21 times it's used, there's another word that sits right beside it. Now, Greg, you should know the answer to this. Come on. Think about Exodus. The word is seat. Who would have thought? Mercy seat. 21 times it's first used in the Bible. It's, it's called mercy seat. Um, and so, where in the world is the mercy seat? What, well, well, what is the mercy seat? Maybe some of you don't know what the mercy seat is. Mercy seat is, uh, is a, a gold lid that uh, was um, hammered gold around it with two cherubim on either side of it like this. And it was like the lid or the top that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And um, so, in Exodus 25-22, Jesus says this, At this very place, at the mercy seat, there I will meet you. And so, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Do you lawyers know what that is? What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. Commandments. The law and, and the manna as a reminder. And so in the, covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant was the law. On top of it was the mercy seat. And then God's presence rested above the Ark of the Covenant. And so what is there then between the law and God. It's the broken law and the mercy that covers it. Yes. There's this mercy, this this whole aspect of who God is. He, he gave a symbol of it from the very beginning in that he says, for, for you and me to approach one another, there has to be mercy between us. And, and so the priests every year sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And what's interesting about this whole concept is the Hebrew word for, for mercy seat is kaporet, which root is kapur, which we understand the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur is in October, which is the Day of Atonement. Now, um, this, this is really interesting because this particular word, when it's translated in Greek, 
means propitiation. So try, try to follow me here because um, there, there is the scripture which this will be the fourth time it's been used in the last four months. Not only just by me, I know Bill, Bill uh, used it one Sunday uh, in follow-up to a message. In Romans three twenty-three through 25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. This word is, is really basically corresponds to mercy seat. By his blood, the priest sprinkled blood on the on the mercy seat, and so this is a this is the fulfillment of what God had tried to show those who could see it um, in the Old Testament. It demonstrates God's righteousness because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed, and so we have this whole concept of mercy that has to go before justice in order for us to be in relationship with God. Now, but you can drill a little bit deeper in this whole concept of mercy because Jesus used a word in um, in the story that's really the driver for mercy because I can like I can show mercy to somebody and be totally detached from that because hey, this is going to look good if I do such and such for this person. That really reflects on me. But that's not true mercy. True mercy has this driver behind it, which is, what's the word that he uses about the Samaritan? What's the word that's in the story about the Samaritan? What did, he, what did the Samaritan, when he saw that man half beaten, what does it say? What? Compassion. He had compassion. He had compassion for that man. And so without compassion, um, true mercy can't happen. Is this making sense, any sense to you? The word C-O-M, the prefix C-O-M means with. So it's with passion. Now, think about the things that you're passionate about. You know, whether, whatever it is, when you talk about it, you get more involved. You get more animated. You, uh, anything you're passionate about, um, uh, you can see it in your expression. Uh, you're, and you're motivated to, to get involved. And so compassion is the, is, is the motivation and the driver that produces mercy. Does that make sense? You've got to, you've got to, some way feel compassion. Compassion is this feeling that says, you know, I don't just feel sorry for you. I want to do something about it. I want to do something about it. It's not like, man, I really feel bad about those people over there. I guess somebody will help them. Yeah. You know, that's not mercy. Mercy is the act that that comes out of this sense of uh, pity and compassion that you have for somebody, and it it it, it compels you to, to get involved, you know, and compels you to get involved in some way. And so, 
Um, what I want to look at is this this particular word, um, which is the word that's behind mercy, because Jesus said this more than once in Matthew twelve seven, and again in Matthew nine thirteen. Um, he said, "But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion." And not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. So. And again he says. But but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous. But sinners. Compassion. Is this thing in God. That drives him. To find a way to stay just and also redeem his people. You, you can go all the way back to um, uh, Moses when he was leading the people. And, you know, he, he asked God, he says, show me your glory. Just show me your glory. And God said, I, well, I, I'm, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. I'll set you over here and I'll make all my goodness pass before you. But it's, it's in the next chapter in chapter in Ezekiel 34, at least in the way I read it, is when he really says who he is. It's when Moses goes up with the new tablets um, after the first ones were broken and um, he's in the cloud and, and God says, the Lord, the Lord. And what's the very first word he uses to describe himself? It's an easy answer. Compassion. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. At that point, it says, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship God. Because the, the revelation of who God is in all his perfection and the fact that he is just and will remain just forever to describe himself first as compassionate. There's something in the heart of God that looks down with pity on poor mankind and spurs him to action. says, I've got to do something about this. Um, And a lot of people don't like the fact that in... Exodus 33, God says, well, I will be gracious to who I'll be gracious and I'll be compassionate to who I want to be compassionate. But Paul picks that up and he says this, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, 
It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so it's this particular attribute of God that I, I want us to, as we move towards the, the, the time of the cross, to recognize, and as we move towards uh, communion later today, to understand this is a key part of who he is. And, and it, this, this whole thing is, just circles back around because I have been um, kind of orbiting around Micah 6 where it says, what's required of you, man, but to walk humbly, to do justice, and to love mercy. But I think as I've studied this, there's very hard to do justice, to go after making things just for other people if you first don't have compassion. And so um, I just felt like today is a little bit of a, a digression from this whole justice thing that I've been on lately. But um, it's important to see that it's very difficult to stay engaged in doing justice with the energy that it takes um, without having true compassion for the situation that you're trying to right the wrong for the vulnerable or, or whoever's being taken advantage of. And so uh, I want to leave us with that. I want us to think about as we partake of the Lord's Supper today that it's the great compassion of God. The first word he uses to describe who he is in this particular thing in Exodus 34 that um, being made in his image and being redeemed is the, is the very thing that he desires that we also display to a watching world. And for us, it's like, okay, who, who am I supposed to be a neighbor to? Well, the Samaritan was a neighbor to one who was very much unlike him, very much like, like one who may or may not even appreciate him. Or after it's all done, onlooking Jews that saw the Samaritan do this he would have no higher standing with those people after doing that. And so God's saying, don't just be merciful to the people that you and I feel like deserve our compassion. Well, that's, that's a stumbling block for us all. It's like, wait, let me check out this situation and see if they, they deserve to be compassion, to be merciful to. Um, and that's where we really have to trust the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God doing something within you that's pushing you into entering a situation, getting involved in something that um, is going to take your time and your resources, your prayer, and maybe some of your reputation because it may, may well be a person that uh, doesn't fit like this, this situation did. And so, um, you know, Jesus was perfect and yet... He was hated. Jesus was merciful and yet to people around him and yet he was still killed. And so um, there's a risk to doing justice. There's a risk to being merciful. And so I would just, as we partake this morning, reflect on the cost to the Godhead um, to, to step out and do what needed to be done that justice could be preserved and we could be redeemed. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you reward us as we, as we study, as we meditate on it, as we ask you to show us new things about yourself. And Lord, even as we come today to 
uh, partake of the elements. I pray, Father, that uh, uh, we would have a sense of how great your compassion and mercy has been for us, that we might be justified because of your mercy and your compassion and the great cost you've paid to buy us back. In Jesus' name, amen. Greg, would you like to come?